Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. ever just uh, watch someone or maybe even watch yourself like make the same mistake over and over again and just have this overwhelming feeling of frustration <laughs> like what the heck man get it together right Albert Einstein you know probably arguably like one of the smartest people that ever lived uh, labeled this phenomena as insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to get a different result. But we do tend to act this way because as humans, we are creatures of habit. Even when those habits are bad, we're not good for us. You know, there's this genre of uh, TV episodes that I really can't stand. Uh, they don't happen as much anymore, it seems, but they were super popular, it seemed like, in the 90s. And I call them time warp episodes, where you watch the same thing, same scenario unfold in slightly different ways over and over and over again until the main characters finally figure out you know, what they need to do differently in order to get out of the time loop, and usually in order to not die. <laughs> Kind of like the movie Groundhog Day, you know, the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray just lives the same day over and over again. And so I don't know why, but I just really don't have the patience to sit and watch the same thing happen over and over again like that. Like after two iterations of the same story, I'm just like, all right, like, come on, guys, figure this thing out. I got better things to do. Which, by the way, is not an admirable trait when you have a toddler. Because they basically just do the same thing day in and day out. And like, especially right now, we're in the phase of like doing this thing that could possibly harm or kill you. Like, you know, plugging things in and out of the wall, right? So, you know, uh, just pray for me <laughs> and my son. But anyway, the point of all of this is to get you warmed up to the kind of literature that we're going to find ourselves looking at today. Because we're going to go and we're going to read some out of the book of Judges, which if you've ever read it, you know is a bit of a train wreck. But before we get there, we'll just take a few moments to review where we've been the past couple of weeks. So we're on week four of this sermon series called My Name is Hope. And we're looking at the different names that are ascribed to God in the Old Testament and seeing how they lead us to a more full understanding of who Jesus is and how that helps us to find our ultimate hope in him. 
So far, we've looked at how God was referred to as God Almighty, or the God who created the cosmos and all that we see and experience in our world. This God, who is all-powerful, is capable of rescuing his people and creating a new future for them. And then we saw how God is referred to as the God who sees me. And the powerful message that that brings into our lives as we hang on to the hope that God sees us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our pain, and in the midst of our just general fumbling through the human experience. And then last week, I talked about how the personal name of God, which was given to Moses when he encountered God in the burning bush, is the name Yahweh. And how Yahweh really communicates the foreverness of God. God always has and always will exist. But beyond that, and more personal to us, is the fact that God's commitment to humanity and God's covenant people is deeply forever as well. God is forever the God who can and does wield his almighty power to deliver his people and create a new reality for them. God is forever the God who sees his people and rescues them from their circumstances, even when those circumstances are self-inflicted. God is forever on the side of God's people, and this is an absolute, unconditional reality. It is the essence of why we can call God good and why we can confidently put all of our hope in him. And so today, we're going to continue on in this theme and look at one more name that is given to God. And we're, remember, we're looking at these names because they tell us something about God. They're adjectives as much as they are Names And they teach us something about God that we can carry into our lives as we seek to follow him. And so today, we head into the book of Judges. And so at this point in the biblical story, God has rescued the Israelites from slavery down in Egypt. And he's brought them into the land that he has promised to them. And if you're reading through the Bible from the front, you get to this point and you might be thinking to yourself... Finally, Because this trip has been really, really hard fought. Not only was Israel, you know, enslaved down in Egypt, but they're a complete mess as God leads them out of Egypt and into the promised land. It took them an entire generation, 40 years, to go like 11 days worth of walking, Okay. They couldn't get their act together. But eventually, they, they cross into the land. They take possession of it. And we get to thinking like, yeah, finally, like, things are going to be good here. But they don't stay good. Not for very long. The Israelites are consistently breaking their agreement, their covenant, their promise that they've made with God. They're deeply influenced by the cultures and by the gods of their neighboring nations. Particularly, they were prone and consistent in building altars to and worshiping the god Baal. And so the worship of Baal was not only itself a deep breach of the covenant that 
Israel had made with Yahweh, which said that they would worship Yahweh alone, but it involved a lifestyle that was in direct contradiction to the moral and ethical standards that God had outlined for Israel in the law code. And so what happens is that things don't go well for Israel. These practices consistently cause Israel to face the downward spiral that individual and corporate sin create. They're attacked by their neighbors, they're oppressed by them, and then in their desperation, they cry out to Yahweh for help. And Yahweh, being a God who forever sees his people, who forever uses his power to rescue those he loves, steps into history to save them. And in the book of Judges, he does this by calling and then raising up these leaders called judges who acted as kind of a pseudo-king for a period of time. And these people call Israel to repentance and then call them to follow Yahweh. And then after that, they deliver Israel from whatever or whomever they've gotten themselves into a mess with. And then Israel, being Israel, does the same thing again. <laughs> and the cycle continues like Groundhog Day. And they don't ever seem to figure out how, they, how messed up they truly are and the way out from underneath it. And so today we find ourselves towards the tail end of one of these cycles. So Israel has been worshiping Baal, and things are, well, they're not going well for them. And so this is Judges chapter 6. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they and their livestock would come up and they would even bring their tents as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted. So they wasted the land as they came in. And thus, Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So things are pretty dire for Israel here. Like God has allowed the mess of Israel's mistakes to, to collapse in on them and impact them. In this case, they're being controlled by the nation of Midian, and the, the Midianites are kind of practicing this like really ruthless scorched earth tactic, essentially acting as a siege of Israel, trapping them into the places where they've hidden and cutting them off from their food supply and really the rest of the world. So things are not good here. And so Israel does what Israel does when they're backed into a corner, and so they turn to God. And the story goes on. It says, When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. 
And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not given heed to my voice. So like I said, Israel does what Israel does. They they mess things up, and then they cry out to Yahweh. And, and Yahweh lives up to his name thus far. He shows up in the same way that he always has. And is like, listen, folks, friends, I told you what not to do. And you have absolutely done all of those things. <laughs> you worshipped other gods. You broke our covenant. But the good thing is the story won't end there because God is not resolved to leave his people in the state where we find them right now. And so the narrative continues on. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezrite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. But Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off, given us into the hand of Midian. And so God shows up to Gideon, and Gideon's like, uh, hey, uh, question. Where have you been? I think that you and I can probably resonate with these feelings, right? Like when things are really falling apart, when the world is really pressing in and down on us, we feel like we're backed into a corner and like the chips have been stacked up against us. This is a perfectly reasonable question. Like, dude, where were you? But God's response. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. But he, this is Gideon speaking, he responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So God's response to Gideon's question is like to kind of ignore it. He goes on past the complaint and instead is like, listen, I'm going to use you to fix it. I commission you to do this work. And much like Moses at the burning bush, Gideon tries to disqualify himself. He's like, listen, I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm the least. And so the story continues on. But then the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. And then Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. 
Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present, and I set it before you. And the Lord said to him, I will stay until you return. So God's like, listen, I'm going to take care of this with you. I'll give you my power. And to which Gideon says, like, hang on to that thought. I've got to make sure that you're really trustworthy. And God's like, all right, man, like, do what you got to do. I'll be here waiting when you're ready. And so what happens next is Gideon goes on inside to his father's house, and, and he prepares a bull for a sacrifice. And he brings it out, and he puts it on a rock. And the angel of the Lord, who we talked about last week, is just Yahweh in personal form, reaches out, touches the bull, and it's instantly burned up. And Gideon says, holy smoke. <laughs> That's not what he says. That's a, that's a dad joke. <laughs> he says, then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord, or Yahweh, is peace. To this day, it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. And so finally, here, we have our name for God for today. The Lord is peace, or in Hebrew, Yahweh Shalom. And so the curious thing that we have to decipher is why? Why in this particular context is Gideon naming God peace? I mean, the Israelites are in the midst of a seven-year siege. And God's solution, he says, is to raise up Gideon and an army that will conquer the Midianites, which will certainly, or maybe, bring peace eventually, but certainly does not bring peace now. It brings more war. It brings more chaos. It brings more death. It brings more of everything that peace seems to be the opposite of. And so I think that we really need to read further on in order to truly understand what this peace is that Gideon is referring to. And so our story will end here today, and it says, that night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull of seven years, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there in proper order. And then take that second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you cut down. And so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, he did it by night. What I contend is that this is what Gideon really is referring to when he names God, Yahweh, Shalom. The Lord is peace. Because, yes, the outward appearance of peace will come when the threat of the enemy is taken care of. But true peace comes when the source of the chaos is dealt with. 
And the reasoning and the logic of the book of Judges is that everything that's happening to the Israelites is their own fault because they continue to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. They worship other gods and they do all of these practices that are immoral and against God's desire and law for human beings. And so Yahweh's first order to Gideon is not to go and raise up an army. His first order to Gideon is to go and tear down the altar to Baal and build an altar to Yahweh in its place. You see, the altar to Baal is a symbol of the source of Israel's disorder. It's where they practice the very act of disobedience to and wandering from their God. And so peace, you see, is actually an inside job. Peace for Israel and for us comes when we are aligned with the source of peace, with Yahweh, with Jesus. So to call God Yahweh is peace or Yahweh shalom is to acknowledge that the true life-giving and life-sustaining power comes from our ultimate rest in God. Shalom is a word that encompasses much more than a simple word, peace. It has a range of meaning, mostly well-being, wholeness, or even success. And what that means for Israel and, what, and beyond is that these most fundamental human desires to be well, to be whole, and to succeed are deeply rooted in our connection to the God whose very identity encompasses these traits. Yahweh, shalom. And many, many, many years later, like 1,500 years later, after Israel and all of humanity had continued to falter and fail at living into this identity of God's peace, God saw the oppression and the plight of the human race. And so he came to truly embody his identity of peace. Jesus came into this world as the most peaceful being that humans have ever encountered, an infant. And as he grew and as he ministered to the world, he embodied what Yahweh was speaking into Gideon all those years before. You see, while Israel, like they had for many, many years before, was waiting for a revolution, a leader to come and use military strength to free them from the yoke of Rome, Jesus instead offered a way of true peace. And when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about his inevitable death, he made this promise to them in the Gospel of John. He said, the hour is coming, indeed it has come already, when you will be scattered each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. See, in the world you will face persecution, but take courage, for I have conquered the world. 
See, Jesus' words are a reminder to us that true peace is not contingent on what's happening around the disciples. It's not contingent on what's going on around us. See, Gideon faced great trial because of his act of destroying the altar to Baal. Jesus faced persecution that resulted in his death on the cross because of his call on people to repent and his willingness to stand in opposition to people and to systems that kept God's people separated from God's presence. And Jesus' disciples faced hardship and martyrdom as they created a countercultural movement called the church that saw and cared for the people that were cast out by the Roman and Jewish societies. This invitation is the same for us today. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, offers us true shalom true peace so that we might experience the transformational power that comes when we live our lives in line with the one who brings order, well-being, wholeness, and success. While the situations surrounding our lives may be chaotic, Jesus invites us to attach ourselves to the source of peace and then carry that peace out into the world that desperately needs to see it. God challenged Gideon to bring peace by actively resisting that which was stealing the life and well-being of the people of Israel. God invited Gideon to expose the source of these cycles of sin and degradation that they, the Israelites were subjecting themselves to. And Jesus offers us the very same invitation. An invitation to clear out the altars that we have created in our own lives that cause us to live the same day or experience of spiritual poverty over and over again, like Groundhog Day or some terrible 90s time warp episode. Jesus invites us to expose and destroy the propensity that we have to worship ourselves, to worship our desires, to worship our finances, to worship our political identity, and then to find our peace by submitting ourselves to him and to him alone. Jesus offers us the invitation to live in a way that extends that peace into our world, to be a tangible olive branch of human flourishing to our broken and hurting world. That's who Jesus, the baby born in a manger, was and is. And we, the people who follow this Christ child, are called to be the same. That's what the silent night accomplished. That's what the gift of Christmas truly is. And it's simply our job to reach out, to take it, to unwrap it, and then bring it into our world. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, God of peace, Yahweh Shalom.
Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We bring all that we are to you. We recognize that we might have an altar to Yahweh in our hearts somewhere, but that we've also built these altars to ourselves, these altars to this world, these altars to all of these powers in this world that pull on us and demand us to follow them. So God, in this fourth week of Advent, we invite you to, to help us to pull down those altars, to cease our worship of anything other than you, and to find that well-being, that wholeness, and that success that comes to us through the peace child, the babe who lay in a manger, who grew up to suffer a cross, and who came up out of a grave so that we might experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. Show us how to live that in our own lives so that we can take the peace that you have given to us into our world. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.